The Lord be with you. Christ is risen. Let us pray. Lord, help us. Amen. How many of you know that help is a full sentence? I, um, I'm an Enneagram 9 with a wing 8. And if it sounds like I'm speaking another language to you, where have you been for the last eight years? Um, this means I, I, uh, my personality is oriented toward being a peacemaker, uh, which sounds honorable and, and really wonderful. It really means that I really don't like conflict and I will do most anything that I can to avoid conflict at all costs. And this is big stuff and it's little stuff, right? One of the things that I hate as an Enneagram 9, one of the things that's most difficult is just simply figuring out what I want. And again, this shows up in big ways, but also in little ways, the everyday kind of things. The other night, my wife called me while I was driving to meet her and she said, let's do Andalini's for dinner. I'll order it. And those were like, that was like a balm to my soul. <laughs> I wasn't asked, what do you want to eat? Or what would you like for dinner? What do you want to do? It was just simply, let's have Andalini's. I'll order it. She was like a hero to my day. It meant I wasn't being asked to figure anything out, to make any choices, to make any decisions. In today's epistle text, Paul is faced with a dilemma. Paul's faced with a kind of crisis about this issue of choices. This is a familiar passage to us, but one that none of us have any idea what's really happening. This is what he says. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. What is he talking about? Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you're a bit confused by this, you're not the only one. Uh, N.T. Wright in one of his short commentaries on this passage simply says, Paul eludes me. <laughs> but I think if the apostle Paul can find himself in an existential crisis like this one, I do what I don't want to do. I don't do the things that I want to do. We ought to believe that we can find ourselves in these very same kinds of crises. We can find ourselves in this conflicted position of doing the very things that we don't want to do and not doing the very things that we want to do. So how do we respond to this moment? 
In today's gospel, Jesus is addressing the generation that isn't happy no matter what. John, they say, is an ascetic. He fasts, he doesn't drink, and it says they hated him. John showed up not eating and not drinking, and they hated him. Jesus is out here living his best life. Jesus is out here eating and drinking with everybody and they slander him. They're conflicted. They're seeing both ends of this spectrum playing out right in front of them and they don't know what to do with it. Jesus recognizes why they're conflicted and he names it in our text today. He says, they've lost their childlikeness. They've become, the text says, wise and intelligent. Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent. He's talking about them. But what they don't realize, what they can't see is just how divided they are. They can't see their own conflictedness because they've become so wise. Paul can see it. How did that text open? I do not understand my own actions. All of us have come to that point at one time or another. I do not understand my own actions. And that, Paul says, is the beginning of becoming wise with God's wisdom and not our own. I texted Father Chris last night and I said to him in all caps, I do not know what I'm doing. <laughs> and he responded, that's perfect. And I said, thank you. Most of us, if we're honest, we are trying so hard to get our stuff together. We're trying to get our stuff together in order to look like we know what we're doing, to make it look like we understand our own actions and it is exhausting. It's exhausting. We know it's exhausting because we don't know how to be in the world. We don't know how to respond to the world and to our own lives in ways that are faithful. Rowan Williams, my friend, talks about the conflictedness of just making decisions. He says that this is what the saints know and what we have to learn. The saints, they can be confident in the choices of their lives not because they have some catalog of prescribed actions to follow, but from the knowledge of who they are that enables them to know what action will be an appropriate response to the truth of themselves and in the world. What is he saying? Saints know what's true. Saints know who they are and they know something of the world that they live in so that the choices that they make is not coming from a prescribed catalog. It's coming from a place of knowing who they are and knowing the world that they live in so that they can respond from places that are true. Wisdom isn't about looking like you have all your stuff together. It isn't looking like you have it all figured out. Wisdom is just being able to see the world and yourself for who and what it is and be able to tell the truth about it. That is wisdom. It's responding to your life in ways that are faithful. 
and the proof, the evidence that you're trying too hard, the, the evidence that you're trying to appear as one who knows what you're doing is first of all, that you are exhausted. You're tired. We've all found ourselves in that space of trying to hold it together, of trying to look like we have it all figured out and it's exhausting. Second, you start realizing that nothing is as it should be. When it's time to dance, you can't be joyful, the text says. When it's time to mourn, you can't grieve. Why? Because you can't see the world rightly. Because rejoicing and dancing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep means you have to be able to see others in a way that is appropriate so that we can recognize the dancing, so that we can recognize the weeping. And that requires wisdom. Think of it this way. When Jesus is faced with this bewildering response from the crowd. When he hears this accusation, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What is his response? How does Jesus respond to that accusation? He's thankful. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. He meets their bewilderment with thanksgiving. When Paul is facing up to the absurdity of his own actions, when he's at the bottom of his self-loathing and confusion, what is his response? The very last line of our epistle text today. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus meets the bewilderment of the crowd and he gives thanks. Paul finds himself at the bottom of his self-loathing and what does he do? He gives thanks. Why? Why is he thankful? Because it was all of the effort to help himself that got him in such trouble in the first place. It's Paul's inmost self that wants so badly to be right. And it's that very desire that sin uses to bind him up. His very desire to do the right thing, to look the right way, to be the right kind of person. It's that very desire to look as if he has it all together. Sin uses that to bind him up so that he doesn't know what to do. He can't do what he wants to do. He does the very thing that he doesn't want to do. He gets bound up in it. It's that very desire to appear as if he has it all figured out, that he knows exactly what he's doing. And the only way that he gets to that point of thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, is by starting with, I don't understand my own actions. He has to pause for a moment and be able to tell the truth about who he is and where he is. And he doesn't understand any of it. Some of us, and maybe I'm just, preaching to myself today. We have tried and tried and tried to make it look like we have our stuff together. Thinking that that's what God wants. To look as though we've got things figured out. Thinking that we're being faithful or doing the right thing by exhausting ourselves. And what we have to be okay with, the way out of that false view of the world is by getting to that place where we can admit, I do not understand my own actions. What am I doing? Why am I doing that? 
Again, sin uses Paul's desire to do right, to bind him up because he's so focused on keeping it all together. Jesus doesn't get bound up in that way because he is delighted by God's humility and delight in our sheer neediness. Who has God revealed this wisdom to? Not to the wise, not to the intelligent, to infants. And what do infants know? They know nothing. (laughs) Infants know a kind of knowing that we've learned too much to remember. We've learned our way out of knowing what it is that infants know. Infants know how to rest, most of them. Infants know how to be cared for. Not because they're submitting to care, but because they're helpless without it. Infants know how to be nourished by someone outside of themselves. That is the invitation that Jesus gives us. Come to me, all who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you what? Rest. I'll give you rest. It's not come to me and I'll help you figure it all out. It's not come to me if you're tired and I'm just gonna give you an extra shot of espresso and then you just keep your nose to the grind. Come to me and I will give you rest. Rest. At the end of the day, when Jesus is faced with a stubborn, know-it-all, conflicted generation that doesn't have any idea what they want, They hated John. They rejected Jesus. The invitation that he offers them is rest. He doesn't try to fix them. Jesus doesn't try to outsmart them or cut them down. He tells them, I am gentle. I am humble. And if you join me in that work, in that life that is gentle and humble, you will remember, he says, what you used to know, that you will remember how to be a babe at God's breast, being cared for by one who is outside of yourself. Now let me pause, and not because I'm giving you uncomfortable imagery, but because we need to clarify something. God does not delight in our neediness. It's not that God wants us to need him. When we speak of God's delight and our neediness, it just means that God isn't put off by the fact that we have needs. Too many of us have learned that to speak about our needs is to talk about some kind of, some kind of fault or some kind of weakness in ourselves. And so we don't wanna name those things, but God is saying, you have needs and I'm not put off by them. I'm not afraid of them. I'm not ashamed of you having needs. When we speak of God's delight in our needs, God doesn't just see us in our neediness, even at its most intense, and think to God's self, just grow up. Just grow up a little bit. You're fine. That's never God's posture and response to us. God, I think for a long time, we've told ourselves that God is impatient with immaturity, but that's not the case. Oftentimes the problem is that we're too grown up. We've, we've thought ourselves out of dependence on God. We've learned our way out of needing God. 
Think about who Paul is. In all of these moments leading up to this passage in Romans 7, he gets there to Romans 7, not by sinning, but by not sinning. I mean, obviously he has sin in his life, but hear me out. He is blameless, the text says. The Pharisee of Pharisees. He had his stuff together. And what is he doing? He's trying to overcome his own neediness. And that is what gets him to Romans 7. That's what gets him to, I do not understand my own actions. He's become foreign to himself because who he was made to be and who you and I are made to be are not self-sufficient know-it-alls who have it all together. We are called to be children of God who can rest in his gentleness and in his humility. Why? Not so we can just become amorphous blobs of dependency, but so we can take his yoke on our shoulders so we can join in the work that God is doing in such a way that what results is God's beauty in the world. That's what we're after. Today's Psalm is Psalm 145 says this, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his compassion is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your faithful shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to all people your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and gracious in all his deeds. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. Remember how this opens. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And in the end, the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. We usually imagine God being slow to anger, meaning that God is increasingly but slowly frustrated with our failures. Not that he isn't mad at us, he's just slowly mad at us. But remember, the psalm ends, the Lord upholds all who fall. What frustrates God in the end is not our falling, but our uprightness. The uprightness we make for ourselves. Paul was as upright as possible and still he was dead sent against God's will. Remember, he was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the one holding the coats of the men who martyred Stephen. Paul in Romans 7, he's finally falling so that he can be lifted up. Athanasius saw this. He says that God saw humanity falling from existence into nothingness, that God cannot bear to lose the creatures that he loved to non-existence, the ones in all creation that alone were made in the image of his eternity. And so the son takes on one human nature shared by all human beings in order to rescue humanity from death. What is he saying? God falls 
Athanasius says. He falls further than our falling so that he can uphold all who fall. God is not afraid or put off by your falling. But so long as we're trying to be as upright as possible, so long as we're trying to stand up on our own, to look like we have it all together, God can't reach you. God can't catch you in that place. I hope you don't hear me trying to romanticize fallenness in some way. There is a difference, and I hope you hear this. There's a difference between sinning against God and sinning against your neighbor and not achieving what we think we should. We should never take lightly the harm we do to one another by our sins against them. But most of what we feel is the pressure to measure up to standards that really aren't about sin at all, even if they get couched in those terms. As a Pharisee of Pharisees, Paul was sinning, but he wasn't feeling any guilt because he wasn't breaking the law in ways that he could recognize as sin. Do you hear me? Our falls then, they are, our falls are the moments that we can come to our senses. We can come back to ourselves as we really are in those moments, but not so long as we're pretending to be something that we're not, not so long as we're pretending to have it all together. Remember our friend, uh, the Metropolitan uh, Orthodox Bishop guy, Anthony Bloom says, God can save the sinner that you are, but not the saint that you pretend to be. One last example, then we'll get out of here. And it's not a great example. I mean, it, it is good. It tells the point perfectly, but it's not a story that we like to talk about because we have a lot of thoughts about David. And oftentimes we have these very idealized images of David. And the reality is that David was a mess, like top to bottom. The guy was just a mess. And in this example, we're talking about what David did to Bathsheba and to Uriah. This moment where he looks and sees this woman that he desires, brings her to himself, and then through this wild scheme, has her husband murdered on the front lines of battle. That's a moment of wickedness in David's life. And the consequences of that wickedness were enormous. God never delights in that. But what we often fail to see is that David's sins against that man and against that woman, they were the result of his own uprightness before that moment. All of his victories, all of his achievements, all of it was delusion. And it's not until he can come to terms with those delusions that his life begins to be made right. Do you remember how this story ends? The Lord sends Nathan to David. David, who was king over Israel. David, who overcame Saul. David, who had wives and children and riches. And Nathan says to him this, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and wives. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah why have you despised the Lord? He goes on to tell 
David all that the Lord is about to do, how the Lord will raise up trouble against David from within his own house. He's gonna lose everything that he has. It's gonna be taken from him and not in some secret way, but out in public before the sun, the text says. And in the end, David simply looks at Nathan and says, I have sinned against the Lord. David thought it was him who anointed himself. He thought it was him and his achievements, the battles that he'd won, all the victories that he had had, all the riches that he'd accrued for himself, the family that he had made for himself. And the Lord says, you are delusional. I gave you those things. I was the one who anointed you. And it's in that moment that David snaps back to reality, sees himself for who he really is, and acknowledges, I have sinned against the Lord. This is the coming to himself moment. I've sinned against the Lord. And here's what Nathan says to David. Now the Lord has put away your sins. You shall not die. You don't have to have it all together. You don't have to look like you have it all together. God is not scandalized by your falling and by your failure. God is scandalized by our own sense of our own uprightness and our own righteousness. That's exactly the place that God can catch you and lift you up. Our falls are moments that we can come to our senses. And what we find on the other end of our striving and the other end of our working and the other end of our image protecting is the God who invites us to rest. So we do not have to be afraid. The Lord has put away all your sins, we'll say in a moment as we come to the table, and you will not die. You will not be given over to death but you will live and you will live the life that God imagines for you. A life full of childlike dependency on God. And when we live like that, when we live from that place, we can hear the music. We can dance with those who are dancing. We can weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice because we can see the world rightly, because we know who we are and we have no delusions about who we are not. Amen.